Welcome to the first episode of the Warrior One Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Pashupa Goodwin, and I'm going to introduce you to exceptional people who are doing what they love, living in abundance, and making a difference in the world. The Warrior One Podcast seeks to find a multitude of interwoven answers to a single question. That question is, how are we best going to live this short, sweet, wild, and mysterious life? We'll explore this question through the lenses of mind, body, science, and spirit. Our goal, to find answers that inspire you, our listeners, with the courage and wisdom to find and follow your own true path. I was a podcaster in a past life, back when it was more like the Wild West, and I've really missed it. Part of my answer to the question for myself is that I want to create something unique in the podcast space. The Warrior One podcast will feature narration, storytelling, original music, fascinating interviews, humor, science, myth, and spiritual philosophy. It will be like life, ever-changing but consistently familiar. The future will take us into realms of physics, psychedelics, workers, cooperatives, artists, inventors, and activists. These themes will seep into this season, too, when you least expect it. On season one of the Warrior One podcast, we're going to explore the world of yoga through the perspectives of practitioners who see yoga as much more than a physical practice. Can the physical, psychological, and spiritual practices of yoga help us find purpose and live more meaningful lives? Can I possibly put more P's in a paragraph? These questions and more will be explored next on the Warrior One podcast. Stay tuned. Episode 1, Amy Apolity and the Past Kumbhaka, Kumbhaka Not Kumbhaka, not Kumbhaka Kumbhaka, Kumbhaka Between the inhale and the exhale, there's a pause which the yogis call by its Sanskrit name Kumbhaka. In yoga, each cycle of breath can be seen as a metaphor for the cycles of life and death, day and night, full moon into new moon, spring into winter, birth into death. The first three episodes of Warrior One will form a trilogy around the Kumbhaka that I experienced between the inhale of the familiar world before COVID and the exhale that is the world we live in now. For me, it was the weekend of March 14th, and I had just moved to Boulder, Colorado. I was joining a group of yogis to spend a weekend studying with two yoga masters. One of them was Manorma, the wise Sanskrit sage who we just heard. She's going to be our guest in episode two. And the second one is the magical yoga teacher, Amy Apolity, who I interviewed back in 2019, August. Seems like a lifetime ago. Before the pandemic, before the George Floyd murder and subsequent protests, before all that, I interviewed these two people who I would be spending this kumbhaka with. The workshop was held at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art, which is a beautiful space with hardwood floors, light streaming in through large windows, a view of a park across the street. But because of the pandemic, Manorma, who lives in New York City, decided to stay home and teach via Zoom. So that was my introduction to the world of Zoom, which was about to manifest. Several other students decided to stay home as well. And over the course of the training, a few more who lived out of state went home because of the uncertainty over air travel and airports and flight cancellations. And of course, getting sick and dying. So the rest of us hung tight and we replaced hugs with elbow bumps, carried on in the physical space, trusting in the process. The workshop was built around the teachings of ancient Hindu texts called the Upanishads. 
Now, the Upanishads were compiled over several centuries leading up to the Common Era towards the end of the Vedic period, and some of the texts predate Buddhism. They mark the evolution of spiritual thinking in the East as the emphasis changed from performing ritual as the way to appease the gods to realizing that the ultimate reality can be witnessed both within and around us through self-study and devotion. While I was planning this podcast, this series, which became the Kumbhaka Trilogy, I was looking through my notebooks, my journal that I'd been keeping notes during the workshop, and I saw that Amy had been talking about these cycles of time um, in the Upanishads and esoteric teachings and one sentence jumped out at me from my journal pages, which jumped out partially because I had underlined it and drew little pictures around it like I do, but it jumped out at me just the same. And it said, the present is the future revealing the past. The present is the future revealing the past. Now in physics, there is not yet a proven law that time can't run backwards. And yet, it seems to drag us forever forward, at least in our bodies. We can go back to the past in our minds, and we can go there in story. So let's get the story started. I'm anxious to start playing some of the Amy interview. I want to take you back in time to meet Amy as a girl growing up in New York City, the girl who became the woman who became the earth conservationist, the yoga teacher, the bright light in my universe and many other universes, and now coming into your universe. I'd say um, that the most profound teacher that I had was growing up as a teenager from age, I would say 13 to about 17. And she was so random, but she was my canoeing teacher (laughs) at summer camp, and I would see her every year when I went up to Vermont from New York for summer camp, and she just was relentless about um, helping me to reach the highest rank in the camp, which was Admiral, (laughs) and uh, I had all these, I had to go through all these crazy hoops summer after summer to, to move myself up these ranks, and her unwavering belief in my ability and the way she pushed me so lovingly, but like a mother, um, fierce, like Kali in a way, um, to strive for excellence and to move through my fears and through some really intense physical, mental challenges, um, and, and challenges that were in nature as well, like, you know, pitching a tent out of nothing and, canoeing a windy mile without wavering, you know, just such deep excellence. And it really taught me to go after the things that I wanted to do in life with a kind of determination and a kind of perseverance and um, just, yeah, chutzpah, chutzpah. <laughs> the Yiddish word. You know, just, <laughs> um, and uh, I, I'm so grateful for that because I feel like it's, it's, permeated my work ethic, you know, in, in jobs that I've had, um, and also my study of yoga and my practice of yoga, um, and, and my career. So it's helped me in every aspect of my life and also to be there for others, especially other women. Amy went on to talk about how her yoga practice outgrew her first teacher and led her further towards her future self. Yeah, so I had been studying yoga since I was 16 for about 11 years with, I would say, two or three different teachers that came and went. And um, when I graduated from college, I started um, being able to take yoga a lot more often in New York City. And there was a studio that I attended, and I was going to class, going to class, but felt that I was ready for something more. I was ready for another teacher. And I just said as much to the current teacher. I was like, I think I'm ready for more. Like, can you guide me? Sort of like, I've been doing this thing. I'm ready to take on, you know, something new. 
And she goes, I know what you should do, Cindy Lee. (laughs) And Cindy was a teacher on the schedule there that I didn't know about. And I went to her class and just one class, I went, oh, okay. (laughs) Like there's so much more that I don't know. And I just dove right in. Jaya Jaya Jagadambe Jai Jagadambe Hema Durga Hema Durga I have to apologize now. If I had the resources, I would have used Krishna Das's original music there in that transition. But instead, I waited till my housemate was going away for the weekend. I said, hey, can I borrow your harmonium? She said, okay. And so <laughs> as soon as she left, I brought it into my little podcast studio and started playing. If you don't know who Krishna Das is, you can imagine that music, but played by someone who knows their way around the harmonium better, someone with a rich, deep voice. (laughs) That sounds nothing like what I just did, but a rich, deep voice, which transports people out of the realm of time into the realm of timelessness. Kirtan is a Sanskrit word that means narrating, reciting, telling. A kirtan is a call and response music form where the person calling is known as a kirtanwala. Krishna Das is the West's best-known Wala, and if you take enough yoga classes, you'll surely hear his songs. He says that the words of these chants are called the divine names, and that they come from a place that's deeper than our hearts and thoughts, deeper than our minds. And so we sing them, and they turn us towards ourselves and into ourselves. Now, if all of that sounds like too much, here's a fun fact. Krishna Das was once Jeff Cagle, who was once a singer for the band that became Blue Oyster Cult before the cowbell. This is the story of how Amy met Krishna Da. So I was teaching at Crunch Fitness, uh, which is some of you in New York know it's a big chain um, of gyms and I was teaching this class down in the basement on on um Lafayette, which was in the same exact building as Jiva Mukti Yoga. And every I had heard his music um from recordings that people, you know, when he put out his first record, um, a lot of yoga teachers would play it in class. So I knew who he was, but one day I came out of crunch and wafting out the third floor window of Jiva Mukti was this voice and it was Krishna Das. And somebody said, yeah, he plays every Monday night, <laughs> Kirtan so amazing. upstairs. Uh, and I, I was like, oh. So after my class would let out, I would typically go upstairs to Jiva Mukti and catch the last song of Krishna Das's kirtan and the prasad and the prayer that would, the puja that would go on afterwards. And, um, that's how I first met him. And then, um, randomly enough, as it, when I started studying, um, with the next teacher after Cindy Lee, um, the retreats that they did out in Utah that I went to had Krishna Das on the schedule. Wow. So like we would do seven hours of practice. And then after dinner, Krishna Das would come on for an hour and a half for Kirtan among, you know, just 50 people. And so I got to know him during those days uh, in Utah up on the mountain. I'd go out for sometimes two or three weeks a summer and just chant every night with Katie. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Did- he invited me to record on Breath of the Heart in Los Angeles. So that was the first time I sort of went somewhere to do something with Katie. (laughs) Um, And it was an incredible recording, a ton of amazing beings in one room in L.A. Um, And then after that, um, 
I was dating the drummer, so we started touring. I just was like tagging along, really. Um, got to play the bells and sing and stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, we went to Europe and all sorts of places all over the United States. And then several recordings, you know, in New York and other places, too. Yeah. That's great. Do you do that anymore? Or is that just an era of your life? It was an error for sure, but um, if if Krishna Das is anywhere near, <laughs> I'm sure to I'm go. Sure he's listening to my <laughs> yeah. my podcast already. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> I found Amy Apoliti by doing a search for yoga influencers in Colorado. I was visiting for a couple of weeks after moving out of New York City. I was trying to figure my life out. And uh, these cool photos of Amy doing yoga poses underwater with sea creatures popped up. I was like, ooh, what's this? So I contacted her through her website, asked her if she would be a guest on my new podcast. It was all still pretty much in my head at this point. Uh, I gave her a list of my credentials, semi-notorious yoga photographer, former web editor for Jiva Mukti Yoga, creator and co-host of a podcast called Vegan Radio, which ran from 2005 to 2012. And I really didn't expect her to say yes. But she did. And so I agreed to meet her at the Breckenridge Yoga Festival where she was teaching. I took her SOAS workshop and a piece of my future opened up along with my hip flexors. I know that's something you've all probably experienced. And she's just one of those magical people who you just feel happy to be around. And her depth of knowledge is impressive. Her authentic teaching style is refreshing. And the future said to me, Pushupa, this is your next teacher. Two moons before I had met Amy, I was going through the unexpected breakup of an LTR and moving out of NYC. And then two moons after I met Amy, I was living in Colorado, taking my first advanced teacher training module with 90 Monkeys, which is Amy's school for advanced yoga education. Fifteen years earlier, Amy had made a similar journey. She was about 196 moons ahead of me. Uh, well, I left New York to be with said drummer. Um, that's no longer, but I stayed. So I, I stayed in Boulder mostly because the community is uh, just wonderful here. And it's, I'm sure you coming from New York can feel the spaciousness yeah. on a lot of different levels, not only I'm physical, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really spacious out here and there's just little conveniences that as I was getting older, I was getting really tired of in New York, like, you know, parking <laughs> and getting on the train and yeah. getting in close quarters with so many people. I mean, I love that because I'm a New Yorker through and through, but I think after a while it gets old. Yeah, it's so, very energetically uh, draining sometimes. Yeah, so it was nice out here. I stayed. It seems that when we find the person we're meant to be with, all the relationships and heartaches that got us there make more sense. Now, do we learn certain lessons at certain times in our lives to be prepared for the situations we find ourselves in later? Here's a brief lesson on the difference between knowledge and belief. I don't know anything more than you do about the drummer that Amy was making music with on her journey to Boulder, but I believe that his role in her life was to escort her into the future where the present was waiting. In Colorado, Amy meets the person she will form a deep relationship with romantically, spiritually, and in starting a business together. Their creative coupling gives birth to amazing underwater photos of Amy with sea creatures, which are used to promote marine mammal conservation. And then they write a popular book together about the business of yoga, and they chop wood, and they carry water. His name is Taro Smith, and this is their story, according to Amy. We met almost 10 years ago. Actually, yeah, almost 10 years ago. Uh, here in Boulder through a mutual friend. And then um, quickly realized that we had tons in common. But one of, the, one of the things that's most awesome about our connection is our commitment to environmental conservation, particularly marine conservation. And so we met really on that level. And then also he's a yoga teacher as well. And, um, we 
and has business experience with startups and entrepreneurial skills that really lent themselves to the school that we started for yoga and the online courses that we created together. And so that that um, sort of intersection of yoga, business, conservation was kind of a match in heaven because those are big interests for us. Taro had gone to the Philippines on a marine trip to do something that hadn't been done, which is to connect human beings with marine animals, specifically whale sharks, um, and show them without equipment on, but actually like a human being connecting to another species underwater in their environment with models. And as soon as those images kind of hit the internet, they went viral. And I saw this and I said, I want in (laughs) on that, but with yoga. And he was like, okay. And fast forward eight months later of serious training in the pool and pranayama and, you know, working out to be able to be, you know, to do that underwater, these create imagery that would move the needle. Um, because, you know, you sort of associate activism and photography with looking at blood and gore. Right. You know, and that doesn't, that does not move the needle in terms of the goal, which is to raise awareness and get people to take action and donate to causes that, you know, that you're trying to, to illuminate. But what we did see with that, that viral response was that these were images that were artistic and awe-inspiring, and they went viral because of the the beauty, not the the blood and gore, you know. And so I knew that if we were going to create a set of images with yoga, I'd need to get, like, seriously in shape. And so I trained for the eight months, and then we set out on the boat, and that was the beginning of a number of um, photography sessions where we were pairing free diving and yoga underwater with various marine animals, whether it be manta rays, whale sharks, um, dolphins, that kind of thing. And I think the the way that it translated and that viral quality along with that was a ton of awareness that was raised, but also conversation that needed to happen. So you would see in comments, for example, people going, oh, you know, they would look at this manta ray with me meditating next to a manta ray face to face. And the comments were like, isn't that the thing that stung, you know, Steve Irwin in Australia, (laughs) you know, and someone would be like, no, that's a manta ray and they are endangered. And that stinger doesn't sting. It's just like their tail, you know. And, and so I think the um, conversation that it started was, was awesome too. But now you see, for example, I mean, I'm not directly correlating this, but, you know, Indonesia no longer allows um, the harvest of manta rays from its oceans. So, so change did ensue from, from imagery like that. And so that, that was the whole concept. I That's hope that amazing. wasn't too long. No, that was perfect. <laughs> Look at this guy. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's a, he's a good one. <laughs> In an interview on Space.com, MIT physicist Max Tegmark says this, quote, We can portray our reality as either a three-dimensional place where stuff happens over time or as a four-dimensional place where nothing happens. And if it really is the second picture, then change really is an illusion. Because there's nothing that's changing. It's all just there. Past, present, future, unquote. Science has illuminated many things, but we still don't know the origins of consciousness, time, or even gravity. Einstein's theory is that space-time is similar to a fabric that is continuous, smooth, and gets curved and deformed by the presence of matter and energy. If the fabric analogy holds up, each point of the fabric would be connected to every other. From that paradigm, I imagine space-time as a vast mycelial network connecting everything that exists. 
Every moment is a thread of space crossing with a thread of time. And similarly, the dimension of consciousness threads matter to spirit. It's the interaction of matter, spirit, space, and time that create our reality. It's not impossible, my friends, that the future in some form already exists. And now I return you to the past. 90 Monkeys as a concept started for me way back when I was still in New York and was starting to see the surge of yoga teachers kind of populating and um, the the overpopulation, you could say, of yoga teachers. And as as a mentor to so many yoga teachers who were struggling to stand out, my heart sort of broke um, when I saw how difficult it was for them to flourish and thrive um, as a yoga teacher financially and otherwise. So I put into the study of marketing, finances, business, entrepreneurial skills, and, and acumen, I put in as much effort and time into that as I did into my yoga studies. So I realized, okay, we have this great lifestyle where we're helping people feel better about themselves and relaxing all these people when we go teach and we love what we're doing. We love our lifestyle, but we're not really getting compensated for how much we've put into this and to the study of this. And how can I mentor others who are struggling if I myself haven't really figured this out and, and studied it. And I was doing okay, largely because I was in the right place at the right time. I wasn't doing okay because I was this extraordinary business person or anything. Um, so I studied how to do that. I put my heart into studying it. And then by 2012, when I met Taro, it was like, whoa, we can, we can really do this. We can put, um, we can put this out as an educational tool for other teachers. So that was the beginning of it. And then by, but yeah, by 2012, the mission of the school was really how do we help yoga teachers to flourish? There's a word in Sanskrit called saubhagya. It means to flourish, to thrive. And, and how can we do that through both really good teacher training, like top notch teacher training in person? And then an online school library of, of courses that obviously would be accessible to anyone in the world because they're online, but also filled the gap where some teacher trainings didn't really fill for whatever reason, time or, you know, interest, but business training, career training, teaching tips for retention, that kind of thing. And and extra things like anatomy, like if your training didn't really go into anatomy enough, like we've got a course for that. Mm -hmm. It was, it was sort of just filling any gaps um, for for 200-hour graduates. So now um, we primarily focus on our 200 and our 500-hour programs. One of the goals that I had in mind for this season of the podcast, way before I found Amy on Google, was to provide roadmaps to success for yoga teachers and body workers and freelancers who are helping people one-on-one. As I went into social isolation in March, I thought a lot about the way things were changing, Yoga teachers were shifting to working at home on camera, body workers without bodies. People who had sewing machines were making masks. And I'd been upset with myself for a while for taking so long to launch the podcast. But as the future looked back over its shoulder at me, I saw that an earlier launch would have trapped my work in a different era. As the future would have it, I found Amy when she was living in the city I was visiting, available for a podcast. And along with Taro, her husband, she wrote the book on yoga and business. And it's aptly named The Art and Business of Teaching Yoga. Fortunately, its lessons on networking, marketing, and branding are as timely now and probably even more so than they were not so long ago. When I mentioned back in, you know, New York, when I, my heart got broken by the kind of competition that was going on among yoga teachers and that I put myself through the ringer of learning about marketing and branding and, and how to manage finances and that kind of thing, 
Um, so that's the same story really is that um, the book idea happened right then and there. I just needed to catch up with with it and do the study. And so by the time we got to forming 90 Monkeys, um, the book was on its way. I actually transcribed the first online course about becoming a better yoga teacher and having career skills. And it was called 90 Minutes to Change the World, which morphed into 90 Monkeys. But the the book at first was a was sort of the transcribed version of that course, fully embellished with more awesome um, evolution and that sort of thing as it kind of went along. Um, and then in 2016, we we published it. And um, it's been really helpful for yoga teachers. I, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting the horn here, but like <laughs> no one's ever said anything bad about it. Knock <laughs> on wood. Like it's gotten really good reviews and I'm That's very good. pleased with that. It's, it was a long journey about 10 years of study and then four years of writing. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And so the book is called? The Art and Business of Teaching Yoga. Oh, and I just recorded the audio version of it. Oh, really? And it's you talking? It's me narrating. Yeah, Yeah. I'm stoked. I'm really stoked on that. Sometimes the audio books get these terrible narrators in it. I know. It ruins it. I know. I know. I had to audition for it too. You did? Yeah. Oh no. (laughs) It was so funny. I got it though. I won the audition. You you got a great (laughs) voice for radio. Thanks. Some of us are attracted to contemplative spiritual practices because they teach us to live lightly on the earth. We meet a wise teacher and they light a spark inside of us and we decide we want to be that spark for someone else. Most of us aren't in it for the money, and that's why it's hard to reconcile the identity of yoga teacher with that of successful business person. I think for a lot of people, um, mixing money or transaction with yoga is, is like mixing oil and water or something, and I don't believe that it needs to be... Um, and and partly that that's because of the tradition that I come from in yoga, which is based in more of a tantric approach to the way the world works. And I think largely the yoga that we are familiar with most in the West um, comes from more aesthetical traditions that espouse, you know, asceticism and renouncing possessions and you know, the idea that, that, um, the world is an illusion and the real goal is enlightenment. The real goal is to find spirit. And, you know, in, even in the classical texts, the sutras, there's the purushu, purusha and prakriti. So you have spirit and matter and matter is something you want to disentangle yourself from in order to find spirit. And so with that attitude, yeah, money would be like, oh, disentangle yourself from it. You don't need money. Like you want to just be with spirit. And that's the main traditions that have come over from India and informed Hatha Yoga as we know it today. But that discounts that there is an entire evolution of schools that came after that, that felt that spirit was very much a part of the world and spirit was pulsating within matter and that there's this paradox of you know the absolute and then the world and the relative world but we need to embrace the paradox not sort of disentangle or may or call the one thing an illusion and so I think if you see the world from that perspective that we're in this paradox and we're just embracing that then you would realize okay money is a part of the equation as much as it is a part of of matter and the bushes outside and the trees that are rustling in the wind, you know, that it's, it's energy. It's part of our world. Um, and as such, we got to deal with it. And we, Hmm. we also know that, um, that in ancient India, the teacher was given some sort of, uh, dakshina, like given something to, you know, in exchange for the teachings, whether it was, you know, fruit and prasad or something like that. So there was always an exchange. Maybe it wasn't like, yeah, to study with me, it's going to be $595. But it was like, you know, the the students and the disciples brought things, right? 
And so we need a 21st century version of that. We're living in the 21st century where we find that parody. And that parody happens to be transaction in this 21st century world. And um, the other thing I think it's really important to recognize is that yoga teachers aren't spiritual teachers, right? Like we're not, like I think a lot of the misperception about money and yoga comes from the confusion with church because church you go to and it's free. The only thing that comes around is the donation, you know, basket or something like that. And maybe an encouragement to donate, but there isn't like it costs this much to be spiritual, right? For yoga teachers, we are not preachers. Like, let's get that really clear. Like, we're not just spiritual teachers. We are also educators in a physical way. So we understand the body. We are philosophical teachers. So we teach philosophy and we teach history in addition to spirituality. And so as an educator, if you look at yourself that way and not as a preacher, which we're clearly not, (laughs) then you go, okay, I'm up there with a professor. And then you go, do professors get paid? Uh, yes. Right. So, I mean, some of us have put so much into our education, time, money, resources, sacrifices to, to get educated and to offer that to our students. And so as such, let's have a 21st century model of parity, you know, and transaction that works, right? In yoga, the word svadhyaya means self-study, and it's an important practice for developing wisdom. Amy saw that in creating a successful business, study of the self was key. In her book, she applies the teachings of svadhyaya to branding. Now, the word branding derives from the Old Norse word brander, or to burn, and it refers to the practice of branding livestock, which dates back more than 4,000 years to the Indus Valley, coincidentally where yoga was born. Now that kind of branding is an act of violence done to show ownership. It's been used on humans and non-humans alike, as we know, and it's awful. Branding evolved to mean something different in the business world, A business becomes successful by building a strong brand. Now, my marketing guru, Seth Godin, defines a brand as a set of expectations, memories, stories, and relationships that, taken together, account for a consumer's decision to choose one product or service over another. I personally think we should start using the word svadhyaya in place of brand. It's more fun to say, and it would remove kind of a confederate statue from the public square of our minds all in favor say when you really like break apart or unpack branding it's completely about knowing yourself and understanding who you are and so I often tell my students in our business module that we have which is a module where we go over career skills, but also get a chance to practice on the mat for three and a half hours. I often tell them that, that it's okay to look at branding actually as Svadhyaya and, um, look at branding almost parallel to the yoga path itself, because yoga to me is, is the path of self-reflection and looking and going, who am I? And how do I put that out into the world in a way that would serve others? And that's basically branding. So it's like deep dive into who you are and how you can offer that in color, in in font, in photo, in words, everything. We do a lot with the branding exercises so that they are able to discover who who they are, who they want to work with too. I mean, a lot of branding isn't just about presenting, you know, this is who I am, but like you said, going after who do I get to work with? Like, who do, who do I want to have walk through my doors or uh, interact with on webinars if that's your product, you know, whatever that is. Um, what kind of community do I want? Do I want to be working with private students only? Or do I want to have group classes that are really diverse in age and background? 
do I want to have small classes? Do I want to have really big classes? And I think um, what we try to do at 90 Monkeys is, is to ask those questions and get people thinking about what's possible for them and then develop the brand identity that can draw that to them. Through the practice of Svadhyaya, we find out who we are and who we want to serve. My next question for Amy was, how do we bring that authenticity back to our students? My recommendation would be to do the practice. And when I say do the practice, I don't necessarily mean get on your mat and, you know, at a certain time of day and for a certain amount of time, but do the practice of self-inquiry and mining your unconscious for who you are and what might be possible for you and to listen less to the voices of society that are telling you who you should be and listen much more closely to the voices inside your unconscious that tell you who you already are. And if you're if you're really doing yoga, and, and that can happen from meditation, it can happen from the contemplation after meditation, it can happen from mantra, from pranayama, from asana, from being in community with other yogis, from attending workshops, attending trainings, being in the practice. Those voices from the unconscious will be more audible and less audible will be the, the, the things that society tells us that we should be. And I think the more you connect to that, you're going to teach an authentic class and you're going to express yourself from that place rather than this place of like, oh, I should be this person. And, you know, we even get those messages about what it means to be a yoga teacher. Make no mistake. Like a yoga teacher is X. A yoga teacher is, you know, <laughs> really holy or something like 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 we get these ideas from the outside world of even what we're supposed to be like as a yoga teacher and that's when you come across really in disingenuously versus when you walk in a yoga room ideally you are talking to your students exactly as you would be talking to your friends outside on the street you know like so there, you don't have a yoga teacher voice yeah, like I am exactly who I am in the yoga room as I am in the kitchen with right. my friends. It's really when you live an examined life, you're going to you're going to be able to present authentically. Woo, there goes Amy dropping Socrates references again. For it was Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living. To live an examined life implies time. Being present, studying our past, planning for the future. From the examination, we find our true story. Who were we then? Who are we now? And who will we become? And what the is going on around here? Without that inquiry, we are bound to live the story we have been told about ourselves by others. Becoming the storytellers of our own lives is the journey of the yogi. And each time we tell our story, it changes a bit. And over time, the facts are forgotten while the story becomes more honest. And as we move through time and our bodies begin to diminish, our hearts and souls are revealed. And it seems to me, the greatest calling is to protect the earth, to be kind to one another. So in that spirit, I save the best for last. Up next are Amy's thoughts, not about yoga as an escape from the world, but as an engagement with the world. A reminder that this was recorded in August 2019, when climate change seemed to be the most likely apocalypse. Now we've got so many amazing new options. Obviously it will be the murder hornets flying into the mouths of people not wearing masks. Well, it is the mark of a good teacher that everything Amy said here in the past resonates even more now in the present moment. Without further ado. As I mentioned earlier, this idea that that some schools that migrated over have this impression that yoga is where we find refuge or we escape from the troubles of the world because we try to disentangle from the world and find euphoria in, in the one. Mm -hmm. 
And that approach is just like it doesn't work for money will also not work for the where we find ourselves. And that is because that would be the kind of like head in the sand approach or like talk to the hand approach. And so the yoga of engagement or the yoga of embracing the paradox that we live in a world that is real and we also have this beautiful connection to spirit um, for us to live in the world I truly believe that we won't succeed as a species unless we're willing to engage and face the challenge that is it and that we are in and we're in a crisis and I want to name that as a crisis so that we're fully embracing what it is and embracing the reality of what we face versus denying it or going into denial. And I feel like a lot of times when times are tough, and this is probably the toughest it could ever get, like to, to face the fact that our children and our children's children might live in a world where they're constantly being bashed by the, the consequences of, of, of a climate gone wild. Um, that if we don't face that head on, that, that, that our species really is going to perish as a whole. I think the planet's going to be fine, but our children and our, their children will not. And I'm a little worried even about my own life. I have to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty like, old. I've been here for a while, see. but I have quite a <laughs> number of years left. So, yeah. but what I, what I want to stress is that this isn't, it isn't just about our lives. I think we're plagued right now by denial and we're plagued by hyper-individualism and we're not quite embracing enough the like eyes wide open and how do we help everyone, not just ourselves? How do we help future generations, not just ourselves? And it's, I, I find it, I kind of feel silly even saying it. It seems so obvious what we need to do. And yet people go into denial so easily and they go into hyper-individualism so easily, particularly now. And much of that has to do with the internet and the algorithms. And we could have a whole other podcast on that. Um, I recommend people watch The Great Hack if you're interested in that on Netflix. But, um, but make no mistake, we're at a we're at a tipping point here. And if people don't start embracing the whole and that the more we help others, we naturally help ourselves. It's not the other way around. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is, I mean, it is in the sense of like, if I take care of myself, then I'll have more energy to help others. Yes, that's true. But it is, but this is like dog eat dog. We've gotten to a dog eat dog place where it's like, I'm just helping myself for the sake of helping myself and my family, you know, and not, not thinking about the rest of the planet. And so the other thing is like, it's really easy to go into denial because of the despair. And if you let despair take over, you will be in inaction. And that brings us exactly to where Krishna and Arjuna stand in the Bhagavad Gita. Here Amy references the Bhagavad Gita, one of the great spiritual texts of Hinduism. It's the story of a battle between two sides of the Bharata family, the Pandavas and the Kauravas. The story takes place before the battle and is a dialogue between the Pandava warrior Arjuna and his charioteer Krishna, who is an incarnation of the divine. Arjuna sees family members on both sides of the battle and lowers his weapons in despair. Arjuna is slumped over. He doesn't know what to do about this big dilemma he's got in front of him. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? He doesn't know what to do. And Krishna basically is like, stand up, get up, do asana, do pranayama, do your yoga. <laughs> you know, slaps him across the face, wakes him up and says, take action. And in the end, he goes, do what you're going to do. Do what you want. Arjuna chooses action because inaction is just nihilism. So if we're not doing something every single day, 
to make a difference right now for the climate, that's nihilism. And the action steps that you can take are numerous daily things. And much of them right now, I'll just be blunt, is to get your friends to vote. It's to stand on lines with like an iPad and register people to vote who are like waiting online at the DMV or something. Like, like we have to vote in leaders that care about climate change and the climate crisis and who are committed to that. And it's only going to come from the top. Sure, we can unplug our toasters when we're not using them. We can unplug our phone chargers when we're not charging. We can significantly reduce our animal products intake. Um, we can do all those things every single day, and we should. But this probably the single most important thing right now is the 2020 election. Um, and if this, if you're listening to this and it's past 2020, you should still <laughs> be um, getting people to to do their civil engagement. You know, do their yeah. duty. That's a good note to end on. I think <laughs> I got a little fired up. Sorry, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the past with Amy Apolity, part one of Warrior One's Kumbhaka trilogy. I want to thank Amy so much for being my first guest. It was an honor to speak with her. And here's some ways you can stay connected. 90monkeys.com, 90monkeys.com, amyapolity.com, A-M-Y-I-P-P-O-L-I-T-I.com. The art and business of teaching yoga everywhere you can find books, audiobooks, video yoga classes on glow.com, G-L-O.com, and all of that will be in the show notes at thewarriorone.collective.com slash podcast. Our next episode, part two of the Kumpaka trilogy, is called The Present with Manorama. I'm going to feature clips from two interviews I conducted with the renowned Sanskrit and spiritual philosophy teacher, one from before and one from after the Kumpaka, one in person and one on Zoom. My narration will delve into the life and teachings of the Hindu goddess Kali, goddess of death and time. Kali Durge Namo Nama. 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 Until then, listen quietly for the subtle voice of the future and notice when things you have done without quite knowing why become relevant. The Warrior One Podcast is a production of the Warrior One Collective, www.warriorone.collective.com. Kumbhaka.